Hi, I'm Suzanne McHugh, Artistic Director of Susie McHugh and Dancers, and you're listening to Rebellion Dogs Radio. Welcome to Rebellion Dogs Radio, episode 54. Call this the Studio 54 Dance Episode. Always a contemporary look at recovery now, with less dogma and more bite. We do some science, some art, and just life stuff. We heard Suzanne's voice at the top. We finished the show with a chat about her first two years of recovery, navigating as an atheist through AA's supernatural narrative about addiction and recovery. We finish with dance. Yes, choreographed dance on radio. Like words, dance communicates. Dance can be connection as well as talking. Let me read you uh, something from Berkeley University that shakes yet another erroneous conclusion. It's all in my mind. My recovery is found on reason and reason alone. So this is what Berkeley University says. Stories are told in the body. It does not seem that way. We tend to think of stories as emerging from consciousness, from dreams or fantasies, and traveling through words or images to other minds. We see them outside of us, on paper, on a screen, never under the skin. But this is how Berkeley University blogger Jeremy Adam Smith starts his article, The Science of the Story. Stories are told in the body? Well, we do talk about it this way. I feel it in my guts. My heart fluttered. I feel sick to my stomach to tell you this, but all body stuff. Not only do we receive messages through the body, dancer, choreographer, Suzanne McHugh, will talk to us about how stories can be masterfully told with the body. We hook you up to a YouTube video to see and hear what the heck I'm talking about. The Berkeley University blog about stories and our body reveals how present-day scientists see sharing stories and experiences and how we store them in our body according to Berkeley U. Experiencing a story alters our neurochemical process, and stories are a powerful force in shaping human behavior. In this way, stories are not just instruments of connection and entertainment, but also of control. We don't need the science of storytelling to tell a story. We do, however, need science if we want to understand the roots of our storytelling instinct and how tales shape beliefs and behavior, often below conscious awareness. As Neil Gaiman writes in his novel Coraline, fairy tales are more than true, not because they tell us that dragons exist, but because they tell us The dragons can be beaten. So, stories, even fables, are more than true? Well, when a newcomer hears another addict's story of being overwhelmed by the dragon that is addiction, but then overcomes the challenge, 
this story of heroism is more than true for the storyteller. And it's helpful and hopeful for the listener. If her addiction dragon can be beaten, maybe my dragon can be conquered too. Here's one more scientific look at storytelling. Last month, I heard on Adina Silvestri's Atheist in Recovery podcast, show number 64, that when we hear people share vulnerable stories, we get an oxytocin release. And when we share our own vulnerable stories and we're listened to, we get serotonin. This is the reporting of Valley Haggard, the show's guest, who has faced and overcome addiction in her own life. She's a writer and founder of Life in 10 Minutes magazine. Now, on today's podcast, we review a Harvard PhD's review of AA efficacy as an intervention to alcohol and other substance use disorders. Our mutual aid groups our quaint talk therapy, while appreciated by some, have been the brunt of ridicule for others. We see how today's academics and scientists looking at today's evidence may rescue our credibility. They come to our defense as we attribute positive outcomes for AA4. They come to our rescue as we attribute positive outcomes for our AA attendance, or Women for Sobriety, Life Ring, Smart, Refuge Recovery, or Dharma Recovery, She Recovers, or the whole alphabet soup of mutual aid. See how many of these you know. CA, DA, GA, MA, NA, OA, TA, AAA, ACA, CMA, FAA, SLAA, OLGA, Al-Anon, on anonymous. Fill out the whole card, win a prize. Uh, scientific inquiry does not evaluate mutual aid against doing nothing or going it alone. AA and 12-step facilitation is being compared to other more professional and more expensive interventions. Oh, mutual aid meetings versus therapy, I'm listening. Early this century, the great criticism of peer-to-peer -peer by academics and bar stool or coffee shop experts is that AA, for example, lacks statistics, data, and evidence regarding outcome rates. In the absence of evidence, mutual aid groups are easily dismissed as placebo effect or no more effective than spontaneous remission. If the term spontaneous remission is unfamiliar, this describes someone with a negative habit, crime, smoking, methamphetamines, overconsumption of pornography or chocolate, gaming, romantic fantasy, body image issues, or too much screen time. Someone like this who quits on their own. That's spontaneous remission. Sometimes we recognize the negative impact of habits. We stop by ourselves. I went to AA for alcohol and other drug use, and I quit smoking all by myself. My clean and sober date required peer-to-peer -peer intervention by way of meetings, etc. Nothing else had worked so far, not therapy, not fear of jail, death, or abandonment. 
only engagement with uh, others of the same common suffering broke my addiction cycle. However, cigarette cessation just came from spontaneous remission. I did that without a book or a program or tapes. People who stop negative habits without intervention, this spontaneous remission group, can act as a baseline, a control group, um, when we're sort of comparing e efficacy. How many people stop a negative activity without intervention? How does this compare to intervention with XYZ approach? Juveniles who have committed crime, some of them stop doing this antisocial behavior on their own. They outgrow it. They apply themselves. They lose the bad influence and the enablers that make it easy to do the wrong thing. A USA National Institute of Justice report looks at persistence, desistance, and onset. Studies agree that 40 to 60 percent of juvenile delinquents stop offending by early adulthood. For those who do persist, the transition from adolescence to adulthood is a period of increasing severity of offenses and an increase in lethal violence. So some youth crime just wanes, some gets worse. Kids who commit crimes before the age of 12 take longer to desist from crime. Property crime, drug trafficking, and violent crimes all have different patterns. Economic opportunities influences outcome rates too. So they're saying 40 to 60% of desistance is a baseline for juvenile offenders. So using this in measuring interventions, jailing, therapy, community support, we don't just measure one person's outcome rates against the rest in the study. Using those who naturally outgrow crimes as a baseline can measure how effective new or different interventions are. If we measure the impact of harsher punishment or community-based supports, we test their effectiveness compared to this control group of spontaneous desistance. You see, society benefits from the naturally occurring phenomenon, and it doesn't cost a dollar or use up other resources. Testing an intervention in youth crime, just as an example, let's say a study reveals a 70% of youth or young adults in the study leave crime behind. Questions arise from the findings. Is 70% good? or is 70% bad? Doing nothing got 40 to 60% of positive outcome rates. If 70% positive outcome rates for all the energy and money that was put in only got a 10 to 30% better outcome than spontaneous assistance, what are we spending our money for? What's the cost-benefit analysis of this additional 10 to 30%? Is that a notable increase or is it inconsequential? Now, let me bring it back to sex and drugs and rock and roll before I lose some of you. Scientific evidence differs from anecdotal evidence that many of us use, I use, or I rely on. Here is how many of us who have used mutual aid evaluate the effectiveness of our mutual aid resources. We tell our substance use story 
how we continued to use despite harmful consequences, and it got worse. Then we found recovery, and it was hard at first, but it's worth it now, and we feel so much better than before. This is anecdotal evidence. Our evidence is our personal experience and our testimony, and we hear the testimony of others. We compare our stable recovery to all previous interventions that failed, and here we are, clean and sober. Our impression is reinforced by numbers of others who also have success stories doing reasonably the same thing. This conclusion relies on informal observations and the stories ours and those of others. I nearly died. I'm sober now, while others die of alcoholism. Obviously, AA or whatever remedy I use worked. Obviously, it's effective. It took a seemingly hopeless case like me, transformed my life. Life today has challenges, yes, but it's meaningful. I have a sense of competency and or mastery in my recovery and other life activities. This is high recovery capital. Enough money, enough love, enough positive reinforcement, enough satisfaction. My XYZ program, whatever I do, or whatever combination of interventions, it's a winner. Science isn't as likely to measure the new me against my old me the way I naturally do. Science may look at us who find recovery from substance use disorder and join a fellowship versus people who stop drinking on their own, or they might measure our group against a group of people exposed to different interventions, let's say. If you can please keep a pin in that idea, I'll get back to it shortly. But to go back a bit, you may have seen it, you may not. Episode 4 of Rebellion Dogs Radio looked at some AA critics who were vocal at the time of the podcast. Lance Dotis airs his grievance in print in The Sober Truth, debunking the bad science behind 12-step programs and the rehab industry. He says, Most people with a scientific bent would agree that science is based on evidence. Without strong supporting corroboration, we would have no way to distinguish between a gut feeling and a solid result, and no way to separate personal bias from objective fact. But the value of evidence depends entirely on whether the data is meaningful, whether it is valid. No field from the harshest statistical scientist to the softest sociology is immune to abuse of the word evidence. Some just do a better job of hiding their foundational bias than others. Addiction studies covering 12-step treatment fail to pass basic threshold standards. Yet these flawed methodologies are not always apparent to the lay reviewer. So this book is about 160 pages of criticism. He doesn't offer his own evidence supporting or disputing the effectiveness of the AA model. He hasn't undertaken any scientific testing of his own or demonstrate if AA is more helpful or, or counterproductive. 
uh, DOTUS does conclude people are better off seeing a therapist, to which he is one, to which he gleans an income, and to which he still offers no evidence if his hourly rate has better outcome rates than the two bucks someone puts in their mutual aid group through PayPal. Stanton Peel, he boasts the number one leading online recovery to describe his own life process plan. He's a go-to talking head for AA criticism. It, now, if I sound like I'm putting these voices of recovery down, I'm not. I continue to listen to both of these men. I listen to what they have to say. We do need better evaluation and improved methods for overcoming substance use problems. But there's a big difference between finding fault like there's a reward for it and pioneering a better way. I think a yes and approach is better than the sort of dick-swinging, antagonistic, winner-take-all approach to health and wellness. AA and rehabs that embrace AA activities or philosophy are the target of the aforementioned gentlemanly criticism. Fine, but first, do some new research instead of just bemoaning the research deficiency. Secondly, Every example of what they believe AA to be, some uniform process controlled by a central authority, anything they pick on, the steps, for instance, or the primacy of supernatural worldview, this gross generalization of what AA is doesn't describe my AA group at all. Maybe not yours either. The broad swath of variation of AA is ignored in the characterization of AA. Also, take any one of these so-called characteristics of what the AA member supposedly does, and I can show you another mutual aid group that does no such thing and still succeeds at finding recovery. The critics like picking on AA because it's the biggest, but lots of people who leave AA don't die of alcoholism. They just go down the street on their uh, shopping spree and they might stop at secular organizations for sobriety or she recovers, where they practice starkly different rituals. All of these, women for sobriety, life ring, refuge recovery, smart recovery, they all have positive outcome rates. Not better than AA, but each one is getting sufferers of substance use back on their feet again. Listen to uh, Tracy Shabala on episode 37 of Rebellion Dogs Radio. She talks about an interesting story that compares different mutual aid groups. Read the report she's talking about from the Journal of Substance Abuse Therapy, written by Sarah E. Zemore. Now, entertainers, Penn and Teller, they get in on the act, too, at criticizing AA. They have a showtime, or they used to have a showtime, part comedy, part journalism, hybrid. The show was called Bullshit, but they would be mythbusters of horoscopes, reflexology, fortune tellers, the Dalai Lama, 
their comedian truth-telling called bullshit on AA2. Now, Penn Jillette's LinkedIn profile does not hold him out as a statistician. He's a magician. Objective truth is not Penn and Teller's currency. Misdirection is what magicians master. How's that for alliteration? I love alliteration. Uh, now, you have to see the episode of Bullshit if you can find it online. It's very funny. For a view, Again, this review of AA through the eyes of Penn and Teller is also on episode four of Rebellion Dogs Radio. goes way back, but if you never heard it, it still smells like a new car. AA or mutual aid or self-help is all fair game for skepticism. Go for it. I'm not blindly defending anything, but as Dotus put it earlier, it's a challenge for any of us to separate personal bias from objective fact. And no one is immune to abuse the word evidence. Stanton Peel and Lance Dotis are legitimately qualified to question if AA is effective. Yes. Back in 2006, the Cochrane Library makes claims that there wasn't sufficient scientific data to corroborate the effectiveness of 12-step approaches to substance use disorder, to addiction. Now, was what they wrote properly understood? Here's exactly what was said in the 2006 Cochrane Database of Systemic Review. No experimental study unequivocally demonstrates the effectiveness of AA or 12-step facilitation approaches for reducing alcohol dependence or problems. Close air quotes. Now, is the lack of evidence of effectiveness proof of the lack of effectiveness? The report revealed a lack of studies demonstrating the effectiveness of AA. Lack of evidence or efficacy is not proof of ineffectiveness. The Cochrane Database Systemic Review of 2006 compared studies available at the time. These comparative studies looked at the following to assess the effectiveness of Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step facilitation programs in reducing alcohol intake, achieving abstinence, maintaining abstinence, improving the quality of life of affected persons and their families, reducing alcohol-associated accidents and health problems. Also, the following interventions will be compared. 12-step programs versus no intervention spontaneous remission. 12-step programs versus other interventions, motivational enhancement therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, coping skills training, relapse prevention therapy, 12-step programs versus 12-step program variants, for example, spiritual versus non-spiritual, professionally led versus lay-led. So the 2006 report was a call to action that more study was needed. And this call to action 14 years later has been met. Wait for it. 
more has been revealed. So, there's a 2020 Cochrane Library review. The lead author is Dr. John Kelly, professor of psychiatry in addiction medicine at Harvard Medical School and director of the Massachusetts General Hospital Recovery Research Institute. Dr. Kelly speaks to what's changed since 2006. Based on only eight studies that included just a few thousand participants, the quality of the evidence at that time was not strong. This updated review, the 2020, is based on 27 rigorous comparative investigations and includes around 11,000 participants, as well as economic analysis. Thus, both the quantity and the quality of the research has increased substantially in the intervening years, prompting this new summary. The punchline is this, right out of his report. When compared to other well-established, commonly delivered treatments for alcohol use disorder, AA or 12-step facilitation generally performs as well as other interventions on most clinical outcomes, except for abstinence, where it does quite a bit better, particularly true for helping many more patients achieve sustained abstinence and remission. The review also found that AA and 12-step facilitation reduced health care costs substantially while simultaneously improving patients' abstinence related to other treatments. The quality of the evidence for the abstinence and economic outcomes was moderate to high, indicating there is generally a high degree of confidence that can be placed in these new findings. So Kelly uh, refers to 25 studies, including 10,500 participants, more than 10,500. This isn't the totality of studies done since 2006, and it's not cherry-picking either. The Cochrane methodology is considered the gold standard of meta-analysis, and this study filtered out from 12,700 files in the last 14 years to the most rigorous and detailed, leaving 21 randomized controlled trials, five quasi-randomized controlled trials, and one purely economic study comparing the cost of AA intervention to CBT or motivational enhancement therapy. The Cochrane Library aims to be highly conservative, being picky to avoid what are called type 1 errors, conclusions that something works when it really doesn't. The Alcoholics Anonymous and other 12-step programs for alcohol use disorder was published March 11, 2020. Results of these studies weren't limited to just does AA work, but looked at the successful characteristics of AA engagement that included, but were not limited to these six points. Identifying and problem-solving high-risk situations, cognitive and behavioral coping skills, three, goal-setting, four, self-efficacy, five, 
building social networks, and, and six, increasing healthy activities. So, here it is. AA is not quackery. AA is more than a placebo, and not only is mutual aid better than spontaneous remission, engagement to peer-to-peer -peer groups is shown to be more effective and more cost-effective than the expensive alternatives and their waiting lists. Have you ever seen a sold-out AA meeting? No. Relapse prevention, motivational enhancement therapy, and other clinical therapeutic interventions. Now, this isn't to say, hey, stop all that other rubbish. AA is the best. The best result comes from personalized individual recovery plans. Some can go to NA or Dharma recovery. Never drink, drug, or act out again. Others may need more therapy, detox, in or outpatient care, multiple tries for sustainable long-term sobriety to stick. Others need less. Some people do quit on their own, just like some get involved with their mutual aid groups and stay for life, where others dig in, get what they need, and get back to life that has sufficient recovery capital, whereby lifelong 12-step or other mutual aid engagement is no longer needed. Others, may, maybe introverts, or for some other reason, they may not be responsive to home groups and weekend retreats and conferences. After you've uh, read or listened to all this uh, Rebellion Dogs Report stuff, if you're a keener, and you want to go look at these studies and the criticisms and all the stuff I've talked about, all the notes are on our webpage. You'll hear legitimate criticisms of 12-step and other groups, but you'll also see some of the flaws in the criticism. Many say AA demands uh, religious adherence. We know that works for some, but it's not true that someone who's secular needs to convert to supernatural worldviews. Some criticisms point to AA being uh, or creating a meeting dependence or uh, teaching learned helplessness uh, as people attach to the ball and chain of powerlessness. Well, we all know AA success stories where people just dismiss the whole powerless construct. They reject it or they reject the steps that it came in entirely. Steps are suggested for some. Suggested means optional. Not all AAs agree on what the secret ingredient is. Is it meetings? Some stop going to meetings and stay sober. Is it an intervening God? Secular AA may be the fastest growing subculture in mutual aid. Is it a religiously based step-by-step -step process exactly as described in the book Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, some rewrite the steps in an irreligious language. And as we've mentioned, some don't need or want the 12-step part of recovery at all. They're still in AA, but just they leave them what they call mumbo-jumbo alone. They may get those needs met elsewhere. They may not need them at all. They may find community, purpose, and identity 
being part of a fellowship sufficient for long-term happy recovery. Besides whatever we think is the AA thing that is the secret sauce, there's some other mutual aid group that does not have that ingredient, but their community of recovering addicts is growing also. So what is it? All of these recovery communities have in common chime, uh, community, hope, identity, meaning, and empowerment. Be it steps, noble truths, behavior modification, all of these processes and groups that we've been talking about, they all manifest this chime idea. How it works for some there's a 12-step process. For some, an eightfold path. For others, it's something else. We started off talking about what some scientists are coming up with. Recovery happens in storytelling inside the body, or the telling and listening of vulnerable autobiographies rewire our neurotransmitters. The big book thumpers may or may not have channeled the grace of God. Now, whether that happened or not, I'm not saying yes or no, you know, or I, I don't mean to sound as smug as I just sounded. <laughs> but what they're doing right, the repetitive process of reading and being read to seems to have the same bonding and stimulating impact of parents and children bonding over lullabies and nursery rhymes. I'm just thinking out loud here, but if I was testing a theory, I'd start with pediatric psychologists. That love and bonding between parents and child reading the same stories over and over again, it soothes and it nurtures. It wouldn't shock me that many alcoholics who we know frequently come from dysfunctional homes, these AAs may have suffered deprivation from the wholesomeness of the same story being heard and read over and over again in a safe environment. Or maybe some of us did have all that goodness before shit got real and the goth circus that was our addiction came to town and signed us up to be a sideshow. Maybe some of us reconnect with a long-missed wholesomeness when we sit in a church basement couch and read 1939 fables about addiction and recovery and higher powers and a sacred book that saved the day. The same certainty that big book fundamentalists have about how and why it works may be true for most of us. We play back our story, see that after failed attempts, success comes, so we think we recognize a pattern. Correlation is interpreted as causation. I do this because... We all know the chronology of what happened. Does that mean we know why it happened? The patterns of failure and success can make us superstitious as we conclude A leads to B. In mutual aid meetings, some of us call the it factor meetings. Some call it a program. Some call it Yahweh. 
I write songs, I do podcasts, I interview, I research people. That's how it works for me. Let's get to the highlight of this podcast. Speaking of which, Suzanne McHugh, who dances. At the time of recording, we're closing out on November 2020. It's the second COVID-19 wave. Most performance arts have been curtailed. Or have they? Songwriters are live streaming. Dancers are going virtual. And indoor stages are going outdoors where socially distant audiences can connect with artists. Let's hear about how one dancer found recovery and expressed her challenges and individual approach, not through storytelling in a verbal sense, but storytelling through motion. Recovery stories can be expressed in the body, and the body can be a vehicle for telling the story. We will talk about how 730 not only shares the experience of one member's first two years of recovery, but this uh, dance by the name 730, this just out, was chosen for Dance Block 2 at Dixon Place, something Suzanne did not know when we spoke over Zoom earlier this month. How exciting. So let's hear all about it. Let's go to the interview. So I am so glad to have you on. One of the great uh, features of uh, the pandemic has been our one click away from anybody, uh, you know, new world, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I've met you uh, in the rooms and knew you as someone in recovery First, I heard you were talking about a dance piece you did, and correct me if I have this wrong, but about your struggle with a sort of non-theist or non-believers uh, making sense of a 12-step world. And, yeah. and before we went on, you said you're nervous talking, and you, how anyone can be nervous talking, like to me, okay, not, I'm not <laughs> making judgment, but not nervous sharing your dancing with the world it makes me, me cock my head and go, wow, that's really something. <laughs> One seems so much more vulnerable than the other, but maybe it's not true. I know. I have bared my soul on stage so many times, but as soon as I have to you know, open my mouth, it's like terrifying. I don't really know why I'm just so there's something I almost like love about just being so exposed on stage. I don't know. It's like it feels like home it feels like safe. And I feel like I have more control than when I talk. I get nervous and I like ramble. <laughs> I have a friend who's a composer who's written many uh, hit songs on radio and he works with a uh, lyricist. He's about the music. His friend's about the lyrics. And when someone asks him, John, John Capek is his name, mm -hmm. John, how do you feel about this? He'd rather sit down at the piano to tell you than try to use his words. Absolutely. I 
kind of explain it in this way of I, the way I feel emotions is so intense and I feel like it's hard for me to explain them. It's almost like there isn't words to explain them, but movement, I can explain it. I find in songwriting, if I'm writing something that I think is more revealing than I'm comfortable with, I'll write it in third person Mm. and and no one gets it, right? Anytime I write in first person, whether it's about me or about a bunch of different people I know or about a particular person I knew or about a completely fictional character, they always go, oh yeah, that is so you, just Mm -hmm. because I'm saying it in first person, I this, you that, blah, blah, blah. But if I write about Bob Jones, Mm -hmm. no one ever goes, Joe, I know so much more about you from that song. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Uh, So it's funny how uh, the artist is and the audience is. Yeah, Mm. I know. Some people don't like to meet their heroes because they have them on a pedestal and they know it. And they know their heroes are going to be everyday people when they meet them in person. That's super valid. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I always like would love to, my hero, like when you said that, I first thought of Tim Burton. Mm -hmm. But I just like really want to see what he's like. I feel like he's crazy. (laughs) You're willing to take a chance and find out what he's really like. Yeah. Yeah, if he's boring, I would be mad. (laughs) <laughs> wouldn't you love dancing like on a tim burton set oh my god well i i used to say like i want to be the tim burton of the dance world yeah i'm a lunatic i don't know that that says something to people that that's an elevator pitch that sort of paints a picture right mm-hmm. do you compose your own music too i do not i wish i did i wish i was blessed with that talent but i am not i pick music I like and then I almost always edit either edit songs together or overlap pieces or like extend a part I like um last piece I added uh, my recorded voice um distorted some things but very uh simple stuff like on GarageBand I'm not that tech savvy I would it's something I would love to um be more I don't know better at <laughs> yeah and you will be right with yeah, time right yeah, but it's uh you know like as a recording artist you've got to be an engineer and you don't want to be but you have to be and exactly. you have to be a publicist and you don't want to be but you have to be and same thing as uh if you're running a dance troupe right oh yeah definitely there's lots of things i have now do that yeah. i'm scared of but it's good it's a good yeah. Now I've seen you in Zoom meetings and I know a little bit about you. You you seem to me like what we would call a high functioning uh, addict alcoholic because your addiction has overlapped your career and plenty of people in the music business or stockbrokers. I mean, lots of people have addiction problems and are still doctors or fly airplanes or or whatever else. Mm -hmm. Uh, For some people, they say it's not the performance. They don't need the courage to perform. Mm -hmm. It's all the time in between that, you know, restlessness that gets to them. I could not agree more. Yes. 
And uh, so uh, just can you tell us a little bit about, you know, uh, your story, like uh, how you got here? Yeah, absolutely. My addiction with alcohol, I like to, well, I don't like to think of it, but I believe it to be solely related to my issues with my mental health, my mental illnesses. I am diagnosed bipolar 2, generalized anxiety disorder, and OCD. So alcohol became, you know, this magical elixir that would take away, you know, all of those, you know, strains from those illnesses. Um, It was an escape from the brain of Suzanne McHugh, you know, and that was nice for a while until it wasn't, you know. Um, I was the kind of alcoholic, I didn't necessarily drink every day, but when I did drink, I could not stop. I mean, I always thought like the idea of someone having a glass of wine with dinner, like just didn't make sense to me. I was like, what? I was like, I I was drinking for a purpose, you know? And I was really drinking. I mean, of course, like confidence and take anxiety away, but really I would, it was also very much part of my creative process and kind of this reaching this like, you know, cathartic level of pouring out my soul a little bit. Um, I kind of took that and used it to get sober in a way. So when I first got sober, I was in AA for like three to four months. And then, well, they, I'm an atheist and they, it was traditional AA. I live, oh, I live in uh, New York city, but mm-hmm. at the time I was unaware of secular meetings you know, of course, we got to the higher power business, and I couldn't do it. And I know many people that, you know, it's of your God of your own understanding. And, you know, they gave me all of the stuff like, well, it doesn't have to be, you know, Jesus or something. But I, I still just like could not like, I was like, I cannot subscribe to this. And then it wasn't just that there's a certain way of speaking and like, kind of like the slogans and like jargon of it was like a little like for lack of a better term eerie to me (laughs) to Mm -hmm. be honest and I so I like kind of just stopped going and I did not relapse I stayed sober but I stopped going to AA and what I mean when I said I kind of um, used that cathartic feeling that once was initiated by alcohol I now use that to stay sober in a way and I just created the cathartic feeling through my art my whole life I've been dead has been dead dedicated to dance but instead of just dancing in my room drunk (laughs) you know all passionate whatever I now like had made a dance company and instead of dancing in my room alone, I had was dancing in a rehearsal space with five, six dancers and I was going to, you know, residencies and applying for grants. And like, I really just, in a sense, kind of like a workaholic type of deal, but it was through my art. So it was like awesome, (laughs) you know, and that's really what kept me sober because it gave me meaning and it gave me purpose. I can't speak for all alcoholics by any means, but 
at least my addiction with alcohol was me struggling with those things. And it was very, and still is, it's, I always say that dance is the reason why I'm alive. I mean, it's extremely healing. And part of that is the subject matters I choose mm-hmm. for my art, of course, mm-hmm. as well. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a good sense of how COVID-19 has affected uh, the music world. It's very hard on indie artists, especially. Uh, how has it affected the dance world? Well, it's very scary. I'm not going to pretend it's not, especially for someone like me. When I choreograph a piece and I'm, you know, envisioning it in my head, I naturally see it on a stage. I enjoy making things for a stage. Um, So now we're entering this kind of world where it's, it's video and film. And that's like out of my comfort zone. Part of it is exciting because, you know, it's a challenge. It's also initiating, I think, a lot of collaboration between different kinds of artists, like different fields, which I think is really great. Do I think it's sad that there's so far, you know, right now we can't have, you know, I can't go to the Joyce and go see whatever, you know, show or whatever. Yeah, that's sad. And I mean, then add in, you know, employment and that mm-hmm. type of aspect. Um, I mean, I, I work at a music venue and um, a jazz yeah. club and we're closed too, you know, yeah. we're, we haven't opened. And so on both sides, artistically and financially, it's scary. But um, I was lucky enough to be able to do like a small outside performance that had like social distancing and whatnot. I had to do the solo that we were we were discussing um, mm-hmm. in a mask, which is not necessarily yeah. super easy. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine trying to breathe uh, in a mask. Yeah. Yeah. I always think of it, you're like, you're like, it's eight minutes of your life, you know, and you're so in the moment, it's fine. But it it was almost it was more so it was embarrassing, because I was like, you know, like, they can see your breathing and like almost hear it. I'm like, they know I'm out of shape, like, (laughs) you know, like that. It was more of that than like, being able just to deal with it. And also, I like to touch my face a lot. Like I do weird gestures. So I had to choreograph knowing that I was going to need to be wearing a mask and not being able to do that. Right. When you're choreographing for someone else, how much interplay is there? Like, do you have a strict idea of how you want them to do it? Or are you happy when they interpret? A little bit of both. It depends on the circumstance. So I have a very specific aesthetic that it's the way I move. People in college used to say, oh, Susie style, like my weird <laughs> style. It's very, uh, well, it's very dramatic. It's also, I like kind of contorted positions and like, you know, mm-hmm. I never want anyone to call any one of my pieces pretty. I never <laughs> want it. I would rather them hate it <laughs> than say, oh yeah, that was pretty. Like, no, that would be such an insult to me <laughs> just because of what I want and what I, you know, I, I like things a little weird, a little dark, you know, like I said, the Tim, I Burton, Tim of Burton of dance. dance world. Exactly. With that being said, there's plenty of times in my, uh, in rehearsal with my dancers and, you know, there's, I'm very petite 
and some of my dancers, you know, are taller and stuff like that. So it's, it's just not going to look the same. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I love it. And sometimes I'm like, okay, then we will change that, you know, mm-hmm. but I'll, there's plenty of times where they do something where I'm like, oh, that's so much better than what I was doing. Or there's also talents that they have that are better than things that I can physically do. You know, I'm not like the best at floor work, but I have one dancer. She's like, awesome so I'm like okay let's play around with that that's just not my thing but like hey that's like a tool that now I can use because it's someone else you know it's it's fun it is fun now let's uh talk about um uh 730 which was a piece you did about recovery where you take your your passion your work and your sort of addiction recovery, put it all together. Let's start with how you chose the music because it, 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 you can see a change of tempo, a change of theme in the music for sure. Sort of a rebirth, you know, the yeah. before and the after sort of thing. So to just tell everybody what the piece is about. Okay, well, 730 is 730 days, which is two years that I've had sobriety. Technically, it's in a few days that I've had two years of sobriety, but it's been, it was on my mind. So yeah. that's why I made it that. It's a very straightforward piece. Um, it's about my struggle with the higher power aspect of AA, really, and feeling like could I stay sober without one or would I be forced to subscribe to this thing and like just questioning all that and then finally also realizing that I don't have to I really am very passionate about that I don't have to to believe in something that I don't believe in in order to to stay sober and stay healthy I just I think that there's other avenues. And part of that was I had found the secular, you know, Zoom um, meetings, you know, while I was making this solo. So that was very much on my mind because it was like, a you know, like a wake up, like, oh my goodness, there's a whole world of like people that think like me. And it was like a really big relief. So the piece is really, it's about both. It's about you know, presenting the issues that I had, but also the relief that I had that like, yeah, I can do this without higher power and that aspect of things. Letting go of God. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, my dad didn't like it, but but other people did. But you know what, I do have to say, I was talking to uh, my boyfriend today, I say, you know, I, I, with my art, I do, I kind of like to, I'll say this, I don't mind ruffling a few feathers, you know, I like making dramatic work, it's, which is part of why it's so interesting that I'm like, can't talk, because I'm like, more than happy to like, recreate a panic attack on stage, but I can't have a conversation. I was saying, I was like, you know what, like, after I did it, I was like, you know, in that solo, I said, I'm an alcoholic, I don't believe in God, and I have issues with traditional AA, all in one solo in front of an audience. And like, that's like not the easiest thing. No, you're going to have a target on your back doing something like that. Right, right. But you know what, I would, 
I would so, as an artist, I, I would so much rather, that doesn't bother me at all. Um, I would so much rather have a target on my back and, you know, initiate a conversation than be forgotten or pretty <laughs> or blend in. I don't ever want my work to blend in. Some art is to in. comfort and some art is to disturb. Yeah. I want people to think afterwards. Yeah, and beautiful. On some level, while I'm sure it's just this piece specifically, it could be disturbing to plenty of people, but I think it can also be comforting to a lot of people, just how the secular rooms were comforting to me when, you know, to find out that you're not the only one that is struggling with that idea within AA or any, any emotion in life, to be honest, or, you know, that's kind of my MO in my work is to have people feel like they're less alone, you know, mm -hmm. um, no matter, you know, the subject matter, this one was, you know, my addiction, other ones are different things, anxiety and whatnot, but yeah. um, I don't know. And tell me about the beautiful stage you performed it on. Oh, it or was the, the floor, yeah. It was a lovely space. Um, it, it was it was outside. It was at the uh, La Russa Studios. It was in uh, Middle Ridge, Queens, outside. Yeah, outside because, you know, the pandemic. It was like in the backyard of the studios. So dance floors are called like Marley. It's like the kind of uh, floor. Mm -hmm. And they like, yeah, they set it up. And it was like, I don't know, like a few inches off like the, you know, cement ground and whatnot. And it was like, Honestly, it was like way better than what I was expecting. I was like, when I got there, like for the show, because I had seen it, I had seen the space before the dance, like the stage floor was put on. They put it on the day of. I was like, so relieved <laughs> to be honest. I was yeah. like, oh, great. I can, I was like, I can dance in socks and not slip. Yay. Yeah. That's always a big uh, thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, things the audience don't think about. <laughs> oh, the talks. Oh, I think about it so much. You have no idea. So stupid, but it is a thing, you know. As a observer of art, I always see things and I always wonder, was that, am I seeing my experience? Am I sort of putting that on that? Or was that what the artist wanted me to see? It, it, you can see cer certain rebirth and transformation times and and rebellion it, it but it was also beautiful but what i just don't know is uh if the fedex delivery guy was choreographed into it or that was uh, just spontaneous uh yeah we rehearsed a lot for that um no it, no that was that video is from the like what like dress rehearsal i guess or whatever because the um the video of the show you have like like the audience in it, mm -hmm. so it was like less clear. So like the video I show people, it's more simple mm -hmm. to see the whole thing really, just to have me and the FedEx guy uh, <laughs> in it. Yeah, you know. Uh, and what's the best way for people to follow or find out about uh, Susie McHugh dance? It's just www.suzymchughdance.com. And then I also have an Instagram that's uh, at little Suze, L-I-T-T-L-E, and then S-U-Z-E. <laughs>
Uh, any uh, Facebook or Twitter? I don't have Twitter, but um, Susie McHuman Dancers does have a, uh, a Facebook page as well. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> good, good. Well, fantastic. Uh, thank you so much for, uh, uh, I'm sure everyone else is going to say this to you too. Uh, you're a much better speaker than you think you are. <laughs> oh, I appreciate you saying that. You're probably lying, but I don't know. <laughs> I talk to a lot of people. Okay, I really appreciate that. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. Yeah, and uh, I uh, certainly will uh, be a fan for life and uh, look forward to seeing you in the rooms too. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you doing this and asking me to do this. It's a huge honor. Okay. Wasn't that great? I've got a little bit more and then I'm going to direct you to go see the YouTube video for Susie McHugh Dance. Log in, have a look if you uh, are like me. Watch it a couple of times. It's like a great song. Who wants to hear a great song only once? There's so much going on on Zoom and Secular AA. Visit Rebellion Dogs Publishing for upcoming Zoom stuff. And as we speak... The likes of uh, John F. Kelly and other academics are still studying substance use problem cases like us and how we're doing on Zoom. Brandon G. Bergman and John F. Kelly in Journal of Substance Abuse Treatment, October 4, 2020, have a study called Online Digital Recording Support Services. Online Digital Recording Support Services, an overview of the science and their potential to help individuals with substance use disorder during COVID-19 and beyond. Attention, we're proud to announce we have a new acronym. Digital Recovery Support Services is now called D-RSS. Here's uh, some of what the report said. Telemedicine and Online Digital Recovery Support Services, DRSS, have taken center stage as potential solutions for individuals who are increasingly unable to access substance use disorder treatment and recovery support services in person. Given the expansive reach of DRSS, greater understanding of whether and for whom they are helpful, may enhance the field's public health response to SUD, substance use disorder, more broadly. At any given time, many millions of Americans with substance use problems depend on recovery support services that leverage peer-to-peer -peer connection. Attendance at mutual help organization, MHOs, such as Alcoholics Anonymous and Smart Recovery, is the most common form of help seeking for all professionals and non-professional services among individuals with current substance use disorder, as well as those who have resolved the substance use problem. The whole paper is worth a read, but what I read from the advantages and drawbacks are three big takeaways that um, I think are worth talking about. Do some outreach. 
Uh, the paper uh, directed at professionals is pro our Zoom meetings. Addiction and mental health caregivers are being encouraged to refer clients to our DRSS, a.k.a. our meetings online, which may in part account for what seems to be increased attendance. Think about your own local treatment center, detox, halfway house, hospital, mental health center. Do they know how to find your Zoom meeting online? Maybe not. In the local Greater Toronto Area Intergroup Office, committee activity is almost dormant. Public information, cooperation with the professional community, hospitals and institutions, they've all sort of slowed down. They're slower than the groups that have shifted gears for this new digital uh, reality. That leaves our groups with the job of outreach. So we can call our doctor if you're comfortable with that. Tell her that AA, for any patients that might be having trouble during the pandemic, is online now. Or what about sober living places that people periodically came from to check out your face-to-face -face meeting? Tell your meeting's old landlord that your group is still here. Pass on the login information and maybe send them a digital link to a beginner's pamphlet if they hear from anyone looking for help with alcoholism. Number two, uh, from the report, digital spaces may not allow for the implicit perception of nonverbal cues that people use to guide their behavior and decision-making in social interaction. So let's be gentle with each other. What this is saying is any of us could say something on Zoom that might be funny in our old meeting hall but comes across as crass or insensitive online. It's easier to misunderstand each other online. It's easier to miss cues and stick our own foot in our mouth. So if we can be less inclined to jump all over each other, and if we're not sure what someone means, maybe just ask them uh, in the meeting if it's appropriate or private message them and say, well, what do you mean by this? And uh, maybe it's uh, uh, a new way of communicating that we got to think about online. Uh, number three, again in air quotes, digital recovery services may not facilitate active recovery involvement as well as in-person groups. The active involvement generally produces greater substance use benefits compared to attendance alone. What do they mean? Well, the meeting after the meeting, going for coffee or a meal or a movie, going to a concert, watching the game, these are things AA members would do together, or any mutual aid members might do together. Now, this might have more to do with my recovery, this sort of other-than-the-meeting stuff, than what was ever said in the meeting. This social interaction isn't as prevalent in the Zoom meetings that I'm attending anyway, at least not as prevalent as it was in our face-to-face -face community. We're not playing pool together or jamming or some people would go to karaoke or the gym together. Can our groups do more informal stuff? Watch parties online, watching a movie or a show, 
hangouts on social media while we're watching the game. Where are newer people who used to get engaged in a recovery community uh, getting that now if we don't sort of reach out and uh, try to create environments for that? Watching a TED Talk together and texting back and forth. Uh, all of these things can be sort of incorporated in our uh, lockdown life. I say the responsibility declaration at the end of a lot of meetings, you know, but the hand of AA or whatever fellowship you or I attend is more than putting on virtual meetings. At least it can be, and this would give people who need a little extra some camaraderie and either some laughs or a deeper can we talk moment that meetings on Zoom I might not allow for. Anyway, I'm confessing out loud, I'm not preaching. These are things I'm going to think about more. Our group always had greeters at the literature table, and we'd direct newcomers if they had questions or wanted free printed resources to go see them. How can we replicate this on Zoom? The point is this, people are still studying us online. The whole recovery system relies on peer-to-peer -peer support groups, you and me, and we might not be as well connected with the community, the larger recovery community, as we were pre-pandemic. I, for one, am going to try a couple of things. Our group met in a university classroom. We would get faculty, med students, nursing or social work students visiting our open AA meeting. I'm going to uh, let faculty know that U of T curious minds are welcome at our open Zoom meeting and where to find it. I'm going to let them know that Beyond Belief Agnostics and Freethinkers AA meeting uh, still exists even if we're not in their classroom in a nearly empty building. Under this just in, I'm part of a new podcast that is just in the building stages. It's for the International Society of Excellence in Recovery Management. Dr. Ray Baker and I, some of you know, have been working on a book together. That's just got stalled about three quarters of the way through. It may still get done, but we're going to do a podcast together, and I'm quite excited, so stay tuned on that. We're going out with a song. This is from friends of mine, David and Vanessa, more associated with my other radio, IndyCan Radio. This is a Toronto band who opened for Bon Jovi in a Toronto arena once, but I usually see them playing at 1 or 2 a.m. in a Toronto Queen Street West indie club. They're called Goodnight Sunrise. The song was actually written at the start of the pandemic, but it's a good anthem for any time of life. The song is called We're Not Dead Yet. So check out Goodnight Sunrise. You can look for the video, We're Not Dead Yet. You can watch it after the uh, Susie McHugh dance 730, which again, you can link to from the show notes at Rebellion Dogs Publishing. Click on Rebellion Dogs Radio, look for episode 54. So let's be gentle with each other. We're all in this together. Ladies and gentlemen, good night, sunrise. Thanks, Suzanne, for being part of our show.
Hi, everyone. This is Vanessa. This is David. And we are Good, Good Night, Night Sunrise. Sunrise. Okay, why? <laughs> why? Okay. You think that you've got something left to prove. You never, ever, ever, ever did. Now all you've got is everything to lose. Forever, 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 forever. Break us down to build us up. Shake us down for all we've got. Take us down, but we will not give up. Thanks for being part of Rebellion Dogs Radio.